Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Peter 3, 8 to 12. Please follow along with me as I read. Whoever desires to love life, excuse me, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him speak peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and... Indeed, it is our prayer that uh, we love you. (laughs) We want to live a life that reflects that. And Father, in a world that seems to be spiraling out of control and world wars seem to be looming, personal struggles of life, it's hard to separate all that. And so Father, I pray this morning that you'd help us to, to focus on what you would have for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Well, thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to 1 Peter. And if you've just joined us, we are journeying through this little epistle nestled in the latter part of the New Testament. We're in chapter 3 of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3. As we approach Election Day this coming Tuesday, much time effort, and certainly finances have gone into ensuring that not maybe the best candidate, but our particular candidate will win. And I wonder this morning what would happen if our country spent as much money and time and effort focusing not on the next two years, but what lies beyond the grave, eternity. Don't get me wrong, I'm not against... uh, Political voting, certainly we need to vote, not running, running for office is great. But imagine if we, we spent this year's election funds of nearly $17 billion on eternal matters. And this is where Peter is heading, because Peter is looking at the eternal. And he, he's looked at the temporal level. We saw that already starting in chapter 2, verse 11, as he's looked at our relationship with the government, uh, slaves and the relationship with masters, wives and husbands. Last week, we looked at that text. And he comes to chapter 3, verse 8, and he provides a bit of a summary, but also he's, he's, he's focusing on the blessings that come not only here, but for all eternity. And vital to his argument is he's going to throw in a psalm, Psalm 34, which I find very interesting, and we'll get to that in a minute, because some scholars believe 1 Peter is actually a sermon solely based on Psalm 34, which is very interesting, because he's already quoted, Peter's already quoted from Psalm 34 back in chapter 2. 
As we're going to see, one scholar writes, Psalm 34 brings the Christian reader into solidarity. Remember, our readership are Christians scattered through modern Turkey that are suffering for their faith. And it draws them into a connection with Israel through the lens of David, with the experience and example also of Christ as a sufferer. And it provides encouragement and hope to those who are struggling. So let's get to verse 8. And what, he's, what Peter does here is, in case you didn't think that the first few verses or 2.11 till now applied to you. You're not, you say, well, I'm not a slave. I'm not married. He goes, well, let me make sure it's, this is the drip pan. We're going to get everybody. And he says, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, affectionate, compassionate, and humble. He gives five adjectives, kind of a Gatlin gun approach, and they have an imperatival force. Let's look at these. The first of these is harmonious, which is calling for unity, a major theme throughout the New Testament. Yes, the church is called to be unified. We, we might be a collection of saints, but we're a collection of saints saved by grace because we're a bunch of sinners. Uh, and so he says, listen to the church, you need to be harmonious. Secondly, there needs to be sympathy. That's entering into the experience of others. We share the joys, we share the, the sorrows. I love the focus on prayer here at CBF. Keep it up as we meet and pray for one another, engaging where we need to with, with the struggles that others are going through, as well as the victories. He also says to the group of believers, all of you, you need to be loving. The Greek term is where we get the word Philadelphia, uh, brotherly love. And he says it's important that we love one another. In fact, of the five, this is the one in the center. And grammatically, emphasis is placed then on this term, the call to love. And it's central, isn't it, to uh, Peter's epistles, God's love for us and our love for others. It's a hard one that Peter had to learn. <laughs> Do you love me, Peter? Then feed my sheep. And loving one another, Peter also struggled. Romans 13, owe no one anything except to love one another. For if you love one another, you fulfill the law, according to Paul in Romans 13. So he says, you need to be harmonious, you need to be sympathetic, you need to be loving, you need to be compassionate. What's compassionate? Well, that's not only a feeling of concern for others, but expressed in a tangible way. Providing a meal, providing clothing. Compassion, in other words, is putting love into action. Ephesians 4, you must put away all bitterness, anger, wrath, quarreling, and slanderous talk. Instead, be kind to one another, compassionate, loving one another just as God has done for you through Christ. And so he says you need to be loving. And the final commandment here of these adjectives is to walk in humility, be humble. There's, there's no room for pride among the believers. Now again, think of our context. Think of the, the groups we've discussed. Those subservient to the government, the slaves, to husbands and wives. He said, listen, yes to all of them. He's already talked about these things, but also to all of us. He's careful. He says, humility must mark our lives. Philippians 2, instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another 
as more important than yourself. I was recently reading A.W. Tozer, the great pastor from the 1900s, written a lot of works. He said that uh, a gentleman had introduced him to come up to speak and then Tozer got up and he said, well, unfortunately, the man who just introduced me is going to have to repent for what he said. Uh, and I'm going to have to repent because I really liked what he had to say about me. <laughs> that's humility. And I mean, let's face it. You look at this laundry list, right? Harmonious, sympathetic, affectionate, compassionate, and humble. Those are far easier to live out when you're on a winning team and everyone loves you. But when you're part of a body of believers that are struggling for their faith, as the readers are that Peter's writing to, when your team is getting crushed, your mates are trying to self-preserve, and your coach really wishes you weren't on the team. Trust me, I can relate to that. <laughs> you, you, it's a lot harder to show these five adjectives, right, that he's expressing here. And, and sadly, as you look I mean, I tried to find a loophole in the Greek. There is none. There are no qualifiers here in the text. The command is not conditioned by time or space. When life's going well, be loving. Mm -mm. The command is not limited to whether you're the slave owner or the slave. In fact, there are no second-class tickets on this train. In fact, if you have to say, don't, well, don't you know who I am? Then you've struggled with a fifth adjective. Humility, right? And finally, the command is non-negotiable. Again, there are no exceptions to these five. The unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And you say, how? <laughs> Thank you, Peter. That sounds really lofty. It's reader digest stuff. It is so yummy, but uh, doesn't apply. I mean, I, how, how, I don't know how I'm supposed to get there. Well, Peter has already given us an indicator Turn back to chapter 2. Don't miss this. Nestled in this section, 2.11 to 4.11, are these words found in verse 21 of chapter 2. He says, For this you were called, that is, to live out your faith, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow. You want to know how to be harmonious, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble? Look to Jesus. Peter says he's already modeled it for us. And you can hear Peter, not always did I follow it very well. You're right, Peter. And he's, he's saying, this is how we are to live. And you say, well, I, I, yeah, I still, that's, that's a hard stretch. There are people I don't really love. And that's where the fruit of the Spirit comes in, doesn't it? Galatians 5, by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the key. That's why Paul in Romans in 7, he says, man, the things I should do, I don't want to do, the things I shouldn't do. And then he gets to 8, and the secret's found where? It's found in the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so we come here and Peter says, this is expected of all of you. It gets a little bit harder. He turns up the heat even more in verse 9 because he says, do not return evil for evil. That's human standards, right? You're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. You tick me off, I'll tick you off. That's the human standard. Satan's standards, by the way, is to do evil for good. But what is the godly response? It's doing good for evil. 
Wow. So he turns it all up on its head. He says the believer is not only called to forego revenge, as we see here, the believer is also expected to bless the prosecutor. <laughs> now again, remember the audience. These are believers who are suffering for their faith, scattered throughout, again, modern Turkey. And he says, listen, you who are exiles, those who are living on the margins of society, this is what is expected of you. I'm not an alien. I'm not a slave. But let's face it, I, I, I struggle. I dare say most of us do. And you say, well, how do you know? Well, how are you behind a steering wheel? <laughs> right? When the server is rude, when you're dealing with a disrespectful child, Peter says we don't return evil for evil. We don't do an insult for insult. In fact, we are to bless. Why? He tells us this as well. Notice what he states, because you were called to inherit a blessing. Now, this is very problematic to translate. There's a couple ways it could go. Either one is viable. The, if you have an ESV, it takes the this in this sentence. It, it reads, in this you were called that you might inherit a blessing. And the question is, what is this that Peter's addressing? The ESV translates it, do not repay evil for evil, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing because you have been called to act in this manner so that you inherit a blessing. What is the ESV doing? They're seeing that this as what precedes, comes before this section. It's a common held view among many scholars. I think the danger of that interpretation is that it would seem to imply that works are essential for salvation. You do this so that you can get a blessing. And Peter's very clear in chapter 1, verse 4, our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So that doesn't seem to fit. Uh, Schreiner tries to justify it with his comment in his commentary. Paul was hardly suggesting that believers will live perfectly and that such perfection is necessary to obtain an inheritance. But he was insisting that a transformed life is necessary to obtain an inheritance. And I, I agree with him. And if that's the qualifier for it, fine. But look at blessings in First Peter. They're not just future, they're also present. 1.8, love Christ brings joy. 1.9, continue in faith, more benefits of salvation. 1.17, a holy life with fear, you avoid God's discipline. Chapter 2, verse 2, partaking of spiritual milk, you growing up in your salvation. 2.19, you trust the Lord, you have God's approval. So there's several times in First Peter that blessing isn't just for the future, it's also for the present. Now, bear with me for a minute, because this is, this is helpful in our understanding of this text, is why, and also why Peter uses Psalm 34, because that should be the number one question. Why in the world would he go on this long citation of an Old Testament passage, one that's not very familiar? What Peter is going to try to do here is he can say the blessings that come. So in other words, the this, I believe, is forward-looking. In other words, one blesses because we have been blessed. We are to imitate the goodness of God, even to undeserving believers, even to those who insult us. We do these things. We bless them because we have been blessed. This is the rendering of the Net Bible, and I would argue is the most viable, but again, either one 
fits with the context. Either one is a viable interpretation here. Because certainly Peter talks about future blessings. But I think the context here, especially with Psalm 34, is why am I harmonious, sympathetic, affectionate, etc.? Why, why do I not break someone's kneecaps when they insult me? Because I know what God has done for me. And as a result, the consequence of, of, of being blessed, not only in the present, but the future. Now, you say, well, that seems a bit of a stretch. Well, let's look at the Psalm, Psalm 34. Because when we get to verse 10 through, well, all the way here to the end of this section, verse 12, Peter appeals to Psalm 34. And again, there are some scholars who believe this entire letter was a sermon based on Psalm 34. There is no doubt. You turn this tapestry over, that is 1 Peter. If you turn it over and it's a tapestry, there's going to be one major thread that holds the sucker together. And one of the major threads is undoubtedly Psalm 34. It's vital to Peter's theology. It has been ringing through his mind as he writes this letter. It's vital. Why? Well, let's look at the backdrop. What's Psalm 34 about? It's an important Old Testament passage because it's where David talks about how the Lord delivered him. The context is in 1 Samuel when David fiend his madness, if you remember before, Achish, the king of Gath, or the dynastic name of Achish is Abimelech. And Ross writes in his commentary on Psalm 34, the psalmist invites the people to join him in praising the Lord for delivering him from all his troubles and to experience the God's goodness for themselves by following the instructions he gives them. It mirrors 1 Peter. 1 Peter spent the first section talking about all that God has done to deliver us. And consequently, this is how we are to live. And this is where we're going with this psalm. But it's also important because the psalm talks about deliverance in the future as well. And to persevere in the midst of suffering. That's what this audience needs to hear. Just as God delivered David from the Philistines, he will deliver the readers from their persecution. So let's, let's look at the Old Testament psalm. And you need to go, if you would, turn back to Psalm 34. It's very important when you see an Old Testament text cited in the New Testament, you need to go back and look at the context of the Old Testament passage. Uh, this time of the year, I'm pulling out plants out of the pots. And when you do, they're root bound, right? The whole thing comes out, all the dirt and everything molded in the, the shape of the pot. That's what you want to do with Old Testament text. The writer is pulling it, but you want to look at the context of the roots and all that's tied in. And how does Psalm 34 start? I will praise the Lord at all times. My mouth will continually praise him. I will boast in the Lord. Let the oppressed hear and rejoice. Who are our audience in First Peter? Oppressed. In fact, there's similarities to Psalm 34 and Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 is written to those who are exiled. Who are our audience? They're exiled. They're struggling. He says, I sought the Lord for help, verse 4, and he helped me. He delivered me from all my fears. Look to him and be radiant. Do not let your faces be ashamed. This oppressed man cried out and the Lord heard. He saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord camped around the Lord's royal or loyal followers and he delivers them. And then you have the verse that's used in every church cookbook. Taste and see that the Lord is good, right? How blessed is the one who takes shelter in him. 
Fear the Lord, you chosen people, for those who fear him lack nothing. It's a fitting psalm. And the context is very clear. Verses 8 and 9 are really the, the central focus of the entire psalm. Taste and see. The taste here isn't just a sampling like you get at Costco. The tasting here is embracing. It's the beginning of faith. He says, taste this. See, realize what, how good God is. 700 times goodness occurs in the Old Testament. It speaks of health, worthiness, joyous. And the psalmist says, our God is good. Come taste this, those of you who are struggling in your faith, those who are being persecuted. Look at this one that we serve, who delivers. And then he says, verse 9, fear the Lord. What have we seen time and time again in 1 Peter? Fear the Lord, right? Go back to 1 Peter. Look at this. It was even nestled in this whole context. And what we saw in chapter 2, when he talks about, you know, you honor the king, verse 17 of chapter 2, but you fear God. And so that psalm comes crashing in to 1 Peter. And Psalm 34, verse 11, right, the verse right before Peter starts quoting Psalm 34, verse 11 says, Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you what it means to fear the Lord. And then Peter picks it up because Peter is trying to tell his readers, This is how we fear the Lord. This is how we are to live and how we can live out these adjectives that I just blasted in front of you back in verse 8. He says, notice, let's go back to 1 Peter, quoting from Psalm 34, the one who wants to love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil. Loving life, <laughs> seeing good days. It's not just speaking of the future, the, the sweet beyond the sunset kind of a notion. It's a blessing for the present. It suggests an enjoyment of life and contentment in life that God has given, no matter the outward circumstances. I love it. It says, down in the dumps. Is this what the sign says over here? I, I had to laugh because First Peter is saying, listen, there there's, you're not to be grumbling. We're, we're, not, we're not down in the dumps in anger and arrogance, returning evil for evil. Why? Because we love life because of what God has done for us. This is what the psalmist is saying. This is what 1 Peter is saying. And remember how 34, 1 starts. Psalm 34, verse 1 says, I will praise the Lord at all times. At all times. Taking exam, coming now with the flu, at all times. My mouth will continually praise him. Putting Ron Page on the, the spot. This week is a rough week. They had to drain fluid from his lungs. Stop the chemo treatments. I said, Ron, how are you doing? He goes, I'm just so thankful to serve the Lord. <laughs> That's what Peter is saying. Warren Wiersbe makes this comment. He says, a good day for the believer who loves life is not one in which he is pampered and sheltered, but one in which he experiences God's help and blessing because of life's problems and trials. It is a day which when he magnifies the Lord, experiences answers to prayer, tastes the goodness of God, and senses the nearness of him. Isn't that great? That's a good day. And for a believer, it's every day. 
Because of what he has done for us, what he is doing, and what he will do. This past week was kind of like the Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. As we, not I, but my wife and the kids were sick, and I thought for sure the Lord was either trying to teach me what I preached last week or was preparing me for this week, right? And they were troopers, and they're healthy now, and they're not contagious, and we praise the Lord for his sustaining grace. But as a reminder of this, this is, this is our great God. And so he says, if you long for this, then you must keep, verse 10, your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. <laughs> in fact, he's going to give us three pointers here in the next couple of verses of righteous conduct and what is expected. This is, this is why we're, if we're to bless others and live righteous lives, these are expected, a proper use of the tongue. <laughs> he went for the juggler, didn't he? Peter knows about the tongue time and time again. He had foot and mouth disease. It's seen all over the gospels, right? What does Isaiah say? I'm a man of unclean hands. No, I'm a man of unclean lips. An understanding, the proper use of the tongue. He also states that you, you need to seek peace and pursue it. You, you need to be forming acts of goodness. The desire to enjoy eternal life should motivate a person to bless who revile. I would also argue as stated by one scholar, I would also argue the desire to bless others is because of the blessings that God has showered upon us. And third, he says, seek peace. It's the bookend of this entire epistle, by the way, peace. <laughs> That's what this audience needs to hear. Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably, peaceably with all people. The very ingredients is needed to fill the five imperatival adjectives in verse 8, along with these that we see here, is found in seeking the Lord and understanding the blessings that he has showered we're reminded then in the last two, or the last verse, quoting from two verses of Psalm 34, Peter quotes and says, for the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. It's not merely that God sees what the righteous are doing, right? You don't want to be doing that when the Lord returns, is what my grandmother used to say. But he's looking after us as believers for good, recognizing and meeting our needs as they come. Those who seek to live out their salvation will receive the Lord's blessing, certainly an inherited life, an abundant life in the future, but there's also one for here and now. And the text even tells us, and his ears are open to their prayers. I love Psalm 34, verse 18. It says, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He delivers those who are discouraged. And again, the same words are used in Isaiah 61 to those who are in exile. The troubles of life need not overwhelm the people of God as reminded in both the Old and the New Testament. Through prayer, the Lord will deliver, and through praise, they will instruct others to live by faith and experience the goodness of God. Sadly, for many Christians, the trouble of life can easily overtake our view of God's blessings. 
Instead, we miss the glorious presence, the provisions, etc. And that's what we're seeing. This past week, as I was running up the stairs for another box of Kleenexes or spraying Lysol till I couldn't see the sky, <laughs> I was reminded God has blessed us so much. <laughs> I mean, look at the pages. Look what the Larsons are going through. We, we have so much to rejoice over. So, no, we don't need to be down in the dumps. And I didn't put that there, by the way. That was there earlier. I love it. We don't need to be down in the dumps. This is the God we serve. That's the good news for the believer. This is how you can be harmonious, loving, sympathetic, compassionate. This is how you can carry this out because all that God has done and the blessings that come. And so when the person ticks you off and you want to run them over, be reminded, no, 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 no. I need to walk in righteousness because one, all that the Lord has done. Two, he, he is watching and it will hinder my walk with him. Now there's a last phrase here that Peter quotes and it's an ominous statement to those of you who do not know Jesus as your savior. He says, but the Lord's face is against those who do evil. What does that mean? <laughs> That means the Lord will not be there to assist. There is no comfort, there is no peace, and there is no hope but future punishment. Psalm 68 declares the Lord will crush those who go on in their sins. Without repentance, a person bears the weight of guilt. And so... Peter is reminding us by quoting Psalm 34, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if there's not been a point where you've repented of your sins and turned to him, you don't know about the blessings. You don't have God's provisions, and you don't have a future that's very promising at all. Why? Because God's wrath is upon you. You say, well, that sounds harsh. It is harsh, because sin is such a great offense to a holy God. The Lord wishes that none should perish, but all should come to him. And he did that by providing his son Jesus to die on a cross, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That offer is given, but if it's never accepted, if there's ever that repentance, then the text is clear. The Lord's face is against those who do evil. There's no middle ground. Either we're under judgment because we've offended a holy God or we've repented and turned to him for grace and mercy. Well, there are three points there in your notes, three things to walk away with this morning. I've alluded to all three. The first of these is an eternal perspective creates an eclipse of the temporal pleasures of life. It exposes our self-centeredness. In fact, our theology needs to drive us. And I had there our eschatology, which is the study of end times. We, we look to the end. I mean, Christianity is apocalyptic. We are looking to the end. We're looking when our Savior returns. It should be driven by our focus on Christ, not on man. That's the problem with philosophy. It starts with man and tries to get to God. It doesn't work that way. And one of the problems the church faces today is that our eyes are off of Christ. We spend too much time people watching. 
If we keep our focus on the Lord and how best to please him, we won't have time to worry about others and what they're doing or not doing. <laughs> I must confess this week I had someone share with me about another church and said, oh, you won't believe it, their attendance is growing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And deep down it, it rattled my cage. I thought, well, what, what are we doing different? Should we do something uh, to try to look on growth, et cetera, et cetera? And the Lord took a two by four and smacked me upside the head it said, John 21, what is that to you? Follow me. Hmm. That is our desire, is it not? It should be that we follow Christ. First Peter 1, therefore get your minds ready for action by being fully sober and set your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's our focus. It should be our focus. Second, a proper eternal perspective results in countercultural living, doesn't it? He's already talked about how slaves and uh, those under the government and husbands and wives, and what he's giving is very countercultural in that world as well as today. Remember 2.11, look at 2.11, it's what governed this whole section. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly the desires that do battle against the soul. Maintain good conduct among the non-Christians. Why? So that although they now malign you as wrongdoers, I mean, they're going to think you're Jesus freaks, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he appears. That's why. And this is what he's highlighting here. Our ethics, again, is theologically based in the gospel, and thus it should be lived out. You can say, well, I'm trying to die to self. Well, a monk from Tibet does that. <laughs> you die to self so that you can glorify Christ. That's the distinction for the believer living uh, today or then. Our, our, our focus is on Christ. Philippians 1, Paul writes, I want you to know, and by the way, he's in prison, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Wow. Bummer of a day, but he doesn't laud that. Nope. For Paul, the safety or his comfort is not what is on foremost of his mind. It's about the gospel going forth. And that's what should be on the forefront of our minds. When's the last time you shared the gospel with someone? <laughs> to share the hope or better yet, when's the last person said, you're different, why is that? Who? Well, that's too convicting, we'll move on. The third, a fruitful life in the present and a glorious life in eternity can only come from, let's face this, the righteousness of Christ. There's nothing we can do. That's, that's what David is stating in, in Psalm 34, that's what Peter has highlighted time and time again. We need God to intervene. We praise his name. God doesn't need us to praise. He's already great. great. So why do we praise him? It's kind of like the restaurant that needs the TripAdvisor points. They're already good, but the TripAdvisor five stars are helpful, right? Well, the Lord doesn't need help, but it's an opportunity to extend his reputation, to be involved. In Psalm 34, the basis in verses 1 through 10, the basis for the praise is because God has delivered one of the greatest ceremonies to recall God's deliverance for the church is communion. And you have a communion cup there before you. It's an opportunity not only to remember, but to praise the Lord for his mighty hand of deliverance. If you didn't receive a cup, we have some extras. 
He sent his son to die for us, remove the enslavement to sin, restore a relationship with us, and to extend his righteousness. <laughs> and sadly, as believers, our lips, which should be praising God for the blessings he's given and to love others through our lips, can easily be turned to grumbling, statements of pride, gossip, division, hurling insults, because we've been insulted. Psalm 34 and 1 Peter states that our deliverance calls for us to abstain from evil and do good, to seek righteousness, and to walk in gratitude. This morning, let's spend some time in prayer. Communion is to remember what the Lord has done for us. This is not a means of grace. Grace was through the cross. Grace is seen in the dwelling of the Spirit and the gifts the Lord has given. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, this is not for you because this is remembrance, but it can be for you. <laughs> as Peter's already highlighted, the blood of Christ has been shed so that you might stand before a Lord forgiven and repent. So let's spend some time to the Lord for the believers in this morning that are participating. We're to come with clean hearts. And First Peter has some very pointed words about how's your heart, how's your tongue. So let's just spend some time in prayer. Lord, we rehearse the commands to be harmonious, sympathetic, affectionate, compassionate, and humble, to keep our tongues from evil and to do good and seek peace. Lord, those are, those are tall orders. <laughs> and if I'm honest, Lord, I'm not always good at keeping those. We thank you for your forgiveness, First, we thank you for the forgiveness that is found through the cross. Salvation that is made available because Christ, your son, came, died on a cross, and rose from the dead. And all who call upon him are saved. And according to 2 Corinthians 5, Christ's righteousness is then put to our account. And this is why we can stand before you because you see your son's righteousness and Father, we thank you. And as reminded in First Peter, and even in the psalm, we do this because we are inheriting a blessing. That blessing comes, again, because of your son's work on the cross. Lord, thank you. Thank you for a time around the communion table in which we can once again reflect on all the blessings you have bestowed upon us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that uh, he rehearses 
what happened in the upper room as a template for communion. He says, for I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And thus, Lord, we praise you. Crushing of the body, the prophets discussed. But the blood, they also did, and far more significant. That's what Peter highlights, the blood that was spilt for us. And so in the same way, Jesus took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so thus, Lord, we praise you. Paul then quotes these words from Jesus. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Yes. The blessings that are found in this life, which the psalmist and 1 Peter highlight, the good news is they're just a foretaste of all that God has for those who call him Father. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for a day that is coming. Father, to forsake Christ for this world is to leave a treasure for a trifle in eternity for a moment. Lord, may we walk worthy servants of you as we cling to the blessings that you've bestowed on us in the name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus, we pray.